0: Alright, we took a little break last week from our study in Romans, and we um, went to Hebrews. So we're back in Romans this week, so if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. And if I may, I just want to speak very quickly about something that I said last Sunday. I just want to clear something up. I made a statement, and I knew when I made it that it, probably some people would be confused by it. and. Uh, And so I had asked you then not to get your pitchforks out and come after me. Pitchfork rebellion, y'all might not know anything about that out here, but uh, it's real. And so uh, at any rate, um, some people did come up to me and ask for some clarification on something I said last week. So allow me to please just share that with you. I had talking about the forgiveness of Christ, and it's a, a once and for all forgiveness. The sacrifice that was made is never to be repeated again. Jesus doesn't have to die again. No more sacrifices have to be made. You don't have to add anything to what Christ has done. It is finished. Amen? And so such is the the power of the cross and what Christ has done for us. And I think sometimes uh, we fail to realize just how big God's forgiveness is. And on an earthly with an earthly human mindset, it's, it's hard for us to grasp God's grace and God's forgiveness. So the statement I made was is that we are forever forgiven. Everything that you have done and everything you ever will do has already been forgiven. And I stand by that. That's the truth. That sin has been paid for, washed away. And so I said, we don't have to come regularly asking for forgiveness for something that's already been forgiven. You understand? We should in humility confess our sin when we sin, for we all sin. And John says that in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But we should confess our sin and repent of our sin. And that's something that we must do regularly because it's, that's the, the battle of Christianity, right? But I'm not convinced that we have to go asking forgiveness every single time because in God's mind, that sin's already been forgiven. It's already been washed. It's already been paid for. Now, having said that, I'm not going to tell you you should never ask forgiveness. I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong to ask forgiveness. I do find myself regularly asking forgiveness. But I think the point I was trying to make is I've had seasons in my life where I feel like every single time I approach the Lord, it's God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Lord, I'm so sorry. And the reality is the Bible says God has said your sins I will remember no more they're gone. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. So it's like God's saying, I've already forgiven and forgotten that. Why can't you? Why do you keep bringing it up? And so, you know, in Romans chapter 5, so much is said about grace. And then when we get into Romans chapter 6, it starts with this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If God's grace is so big, should we just sin? Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor and author of a bygone era, has said that if you properly preach grace, people should ask you that question. If you preach God's grace properly, people are going to ask the question, well, does that mean I can just sin then? Because God's grace is so big and it's so amazing. If we really were to preach it accurately, people might actually have that question. Now obviously, Paul answers that question and says, no, we who have died to sin shall no longer continue in it. But the point I'm making is, God's grace is so much bigger than we could truly wrap our human minds around. And I don't think we walk in it like God would have us to walk in it. And I would say the same thing about God's forgiveness. It's so much bigger than we can wrap our minds around. And I don't think that we walk in it either the way that God has intended us to. And so I was trying to really bring that home last week. So. Um don't worry, my theology's good. Your pastor's not going sideways. If you bought a pitchfork, you can take it back to Home Depot. And so I just wanted to uh, clear that up. Sound good? All right. Well with that, let's get into our text today. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 21. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the Gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs, wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So this is the text that is before us today. Now two weeks ago when we were in Romans, we finished up the practical portion of the book. So chapters one through 11 is a heavy doctrine. It tells us all about who God is and what God has done, God's plan of redemption in Christ. You get into chapter 12, and it is, "How then shall we live our lives? What should our lives look like in light of chapters one through 11? And that goes all the way through chapter 15 verse 14. And now we enter into what is somewhat of a post-script. These are concluding thoughts. Somewhat of uh, Paul's itinerary, his, his um, plans to come and see those folks in Rome. And then chapter six is a long list of people that he bids farewell to before he does arrive sometime later. And so that's what we have left before us. And today, as I said, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. And I've titled this message, Mission-Minded. Mission-Minded. Now, this is actually a two-part message. Next week, we'll go all the way to verse 33. We'll finish out this chapter. And so what we have here in the rest of this chapter is six aspects of Paul's approach to ministry. So today, we're going to look at three. I shared this with Pastor Dan, as I often do, and he said, man, my, my brain is melting right now. You should probably not do all of this in one sitting. And I said, okay. so." There is mercy here today on you folks, okay? So we're just going to look at three. Three of the six. So this is mission-minded. Six aspects of Paul's approach to ministry. Today we're going to look at the first three. So those would be for the note takers in here. Number one, Paul had an ultimate purpose in ministry. And that was to effectively minister the gospel. Don't worry, I'll go over these again. The second one is Paul had an overarching principle in his ministry and that was to glorify Christ and not himself. Number three, Paul had a radical philosophy in ministry and it was that of a pioneer. He was a pioneer in ministry. So three Ps. I actually have six. I was uh, quite impressed with, with that and so we'll do three this week and three next week. So suffice it to say this, Paul was a man on a mission for God. Paul was mission-minded. And that's been the state of the church from its inception. The church has always been on a mission. You know, orphanages, schools, hospitals, that's all the product of the church. And in the early church, when Rome was still very much in power and the church was there, and there were all kinds of detestable practices happening, one of which was if people didn't want a baby, they would just discard the baby and leave it off on the side of the road or somewhere to to die. They called that exposing the child. The Christians would find these children and raise them. Uh, Dead bodies that were left all over the place. The Christians would find these bodies and give them a proper burial. I mean, These are radical things that from the very beginning the church has been on mission. It wasn't just about coming and receiving. That is certainly a part of it. Learning, growing, fellowshipping, but also Giving, serving, loving, living the gospel. And so that's been the nature of the church all along. And this was Paul's M.O., if you will. He was a man on a mission for God. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, you are on a mission too. You may not know that, but that is very much a part of it. And so as Pastor Dan mentioned earlier, our mission specifically here is disciples making disciples. That's what we have adopted. That's a, a very simple way of saying who we are and what we intend to do. And that is right out of the Scriptures. That, that is a mandate straight from our Lord that we are to be disciples making disciples. And we're going to be talking more about that today. This is somewhat of a, a vision-casting sermon, if you will. And so I hope to provoke you guys today to, uh, to good works, to love and good works. That's, that's, my, that's my goal, and I pray... Uh, by God's mercy that that I will be able to do just that. So as I said, if you're a Christian, you're on a mission. Now, many Christians don't necessarily see it that way or live that way. And that's just the plain truth. So often we just don't. It's possible that some don't realize that that's what they signed up for. Some Christians may say, hey, I didn't know it was all of this. And so I didn't sign up for that. Sometimes it can be a startling reality when people realize what they signed up for. It's possible that some don't know what what this means or how to do it. They don't know what it is to be on mission for God. They don't know what it is to, to truly be a disciple or to make disciples. And it could be that some just don't think they have what it takes. Some people just don't think that they've got it in them to to make disciples as it were. And so there's any number of reasons why perhaps the church doesn't fulfill this mission the way that we ought or the way that the Lord has intended us to. But if you call yourself a Christian, it is not optional. It is simply not optional. We have to be on mission for God. We are on mission as a church and we are on mission individually. So today we're going to look at three of the six features framed by Paul's style of ministry. That's, that's essentially what we have before us today. So point number one, point number one. Paul had an ultimate purpose in ministry, and that was to effectively minister the gospel. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So what Paul is essentially saying here is, look, folks, brothers and sisters, I already know that you know these things. All of this stuff that I have written to you, you know these things. In fact, you could teach each other these things. You are totally capable. You know the truth. You live the truth. You're able to share the truth one with another. He says that you are filled with goodness and knowledge. Now that's significant. That is to say you have character and you have content. You have godly living, a godly life, And you have the knowledge. You know the truth. And he says you're completely capable to admonish one another. You're able to admonish one another. And that is to counsel or to instruct. So Paul is saying, look, I know you know this stuff. I know that you're capable of teaching this stuff. I know that you are filled with goodness. You're godly. I know that you know you have the content. You're filled with all knowledge and that you're able to instruct one another. And so this word here to admonish, this is actually a significant word, and it's nutheteo, which probably means nothing to us, but there's a type of biblical counseling, uh, and I would say it's the type of counseling that we endorse, and it's called nuthetic counseling. And it comes from this Greek word here, which means to admonish through instruction, to encourage through instruction, but it literally means to put into the mind. And the idea is is to lovingly confront one another. It has has a little bit of a sense of of, um, pushing in, not in an aggressive way or an offensive way, but really holding each other to a certain standard, speaking the truth to one another in love, and then holding each other accountable to that end, trying to point people in the right direction, in God's direction, giving them biblical truth and encouraging them to live it out. That is the word here. And Paul says that you are able to do this. You are able to admonish one another. And that's pretty significant to me, folks, because if the Roman Christians all the way back then had this capability, they didn't even have the New Testament yet. But Paul was confident that they knew the truth, that they had godly character, and that they had the ability to instruct one another in it. How much more do we have that ability now? And I know that many of us don't think that. We don't think we have the ability to to operate this way, but we do. We do. And so Paul was absolutely confident in their ability. And we're going to come back to this in just a moment. So I just want to kind of hit on that verse, and we'll come back to verse 14 in just a second. But let's move on to verse 15. Now remember I told you the point here is that Paul's purpose was to effectively minister. And that's where we get into right here. So verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul said, nevertheless, brethren, I had to write to you more boldly on some points to remind you. And so what he's saying here is you guys know this. I know you know this. You're able to even teach each other these things. But I'm writing to you by way of reminder. I want to remind you of the things that you already know. I want to reaffirm in you the things that you already know and are able to teach each other in. But then notice this. Paul said that he did this in verse 15 by the grace of God that was given to him. Paul said, I'm writing to you more boldly by the grace of God given to me. So, this grace, we often talk about God's grace and we talk about it in a saving way. We are saved by what? Grace. But we are also empowered, trained as it were, by grace. And Paul says that he's able to do what he's doing right here by the grace of God. And so. In Titus chapter 2, we find this this same idea. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So he says that same grace that brought salvation to the world has appeared to all men, teaching us, training us, equipping us, if you will, And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul says, I'm writing to you more boldly by this grace given to me, by this grace given to me from God. For what purpose? For this purpose right here, so that he could minister the gospel to them effectively. That was Paul's goal. Paul said, God has given me this enabling grace so that I can effectively minister the gospel to you. Now, this is significant. It may seem a little redundant. But this word here for minister, it's only used here in this text. It's a very special word. And it speaks of administering priestly duties in the temple. Sorry, I know this is a little bit of jargon and Greek stuff here for a minute. But I'm just trying to kind of frame this a little bit. Paul said, I'm reminding you. I'm speaking to you boldly by the grace of God given to me so that I can effectively minister the gospel to you. And as I said, that word minister speaks of priestly duties. And what does a priest do? A priest goes to God on the people's behalf and presents an offering on their behalf so that they can stand before God. The priest goes before God on the people's behalf. And Paul is saying, that's what I'm doing with the gospel by the grace of God. I'm going to the people, to the people with the gospel, and now the people are going to be able to stand before God because, um, excuse me, um, lost my place here for a second. That is what the priest does so as to make them acceptable, an acceptable offering to God. Now, this is the outcome. This is the outcome of proper priestly service, to present a pleasing offering to God on the people's behalf, thereby making them acceptable In God's sight. Okay, so that's what Paul's saying here. That's his objective. That's his goal. He's reminding them of these things. He's reaffirming them in these things. He's doing it by the grace of God so that they will be an acceptable offering to God. Now, that's what Christ has done for us as our great high priest. Amen? Christ has made us acceptable to God. He has made us a pleasing offering unto God. And he offered himself as that sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice that has made us right with God. So Jesus, as our great high priest, has done that on our behalf. And that is our mission as the church, as Christians, to see that happen for others. And so that's where we come in. That is the mission of the disciple of Christ. To minister the gospel to other people. The way that Paul ministered the gospel to the Romans there. In that great priestly fashion. Because that's what the Bible says. We are a kingdom of what? Priests. We're a kingdom of priests. We are those who take the gospel into the world so that people can be made right with God. And they can be presented to God as an acceptable offering. And so that was what Paul did, and he did it by the grace of God that was given to him so that he would be an effective minister of the gospel. And so that is one part of it. We want to see people coming to Christ. We want to see people coming to faith in Jesus and being discipled into the faith. And praise God, we've been seeing that happen. God's been moving in the church. And it's so neat to see people coming to faith in Christ and being changed from the inside out. And that's because God is making us effective. He is making us effective by His Spirit. But not only that, we are to be those who train others. We want to see people come to faith in Christ by God's grace through the gospel, but we are also by God's grace training other people to grow in their faith. And we are all in this together. We are disciples making disciples. That's our goal. So what is it? First off, we are to be what? Disciples. Can you repeat that with me? We are to be what? Disciples. Disciples. And what are we to do? Make disciples. And we can all do this, folks. I'm here to tell you, I got good news. You can be a disciple of Christ And you can make disciples of Christ. You know, for the longest time in my walk, I didn't even know that. I remember the first time I heard a pastor talk about that. He asked the question, do you think a disciple is a modern day thing? Is that something that we are as Christians? And the answer was yes, we are. We are learners of Christ. We walk in his ways. We seek to know the disciplines of Jesus and to to live them and model them and then to help other people do that too. And that is a commandment straight from the Lord himself to do that. So that's our goal. And so with that, that takes us back to verse 14 because I told you that I would come back there in just a moment. So by God's grace, who makes us able, who empowers us to do this very thing, we are competent. We are competent as disciples. We are competent to make disciples because number one, a disciple is what? It's someone who has all knowledge. They have the knowledge. They have the knowledge of Jesus They have been saved, they have a saving knowledge of Jesus, and they know how to tell other people to find that too. They have character filled with all goodness. That's what a disciple is. They walk in Jesus' ways. That doesn't mean we're perfect, right? No such thing as that. But we're called to live as Jesus lived, to walk as Jesus walked. And Paul said, you've got the knowledge, you've got the goodness, and you have the ability to instruct other people, to share and impart that with other people. And so you can do this, folks. We can do this. We can can walk with the Lord and we can disciple other people. And I'm going to talk more about this towards the end of the message. Let me just say that. And we want to help you. We want to help you and train you to be a disciple who can in turn make a disciple. Amen. Amen. All right. That brings us to point number two. Point number two, Paul had an overarching principle in his ministry. And that was to glorify Christ and not himself. To glorify Christ and not himself. That was Paul's overarching principle. Verse 17, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in these things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ." So simply put, Paul was a gospel-focused, Christ-centered man. Paul lived to make much of Jesus. And folks, this is what it is to be a disciple. It is to look something like Christ, and it is to point people to Christ. It's to glorify Christ and not ourselves. And that's not really in our nature apart from Christ, but the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to reflect Christ and to point to Him, and that was... Paul's way of living and serving. Paul said that he had reason to glory in Christ and that he would speak of nothing except what Christ had done through him. Man, that's a tall order. I mean, we would do a lot better in life if we could live by that. Don't you say, think, how many many times do we say things and think, man, I wish I would not have said that. You know, if we lived by this principle, I'm not gonna say anything Except, I'm not going to speak of anything except Christ and what he has done through me. We would uh, have saved ourselves a lot of little disasters, I would say. But that was how Paul functioned. Now the reality is Paul had done many mighty signs and wonders and preached many dynamic sermons. We know this. And Paul said that he made his way from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That's about 1,400 miles on foot through many dangers. We know that he was often beaten, chased out of town, imprisoned. And he did this through a long stretch of road by foot. And as a result, there had been much fruit. A lot of people had come to Christ. A lot of churches had been planted. But Paul knew better than to take the credit for any of it. Paul knew that it was all by the power of the Holy Spirit And Paul said that he was going to only boast in Christ and all of these things, that he was only going to speak of the things that Christ had done through him and in him and nothing else. I love that. Paul would only boast in Christ. We see this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said, I have nothing to brag about. I have nothing to bring to the table. There's absolutely nothing that I can glory in except the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's just the truth of it, brothers and sisters. What do we have that hasn't been given to us? We have all that we have because of the love of God and because of the cross of Christ, because of the sacrifice that was made there on our behalf at Calvary and all of the subsequent blessings that have been poured out on our lives as a result. That's the good news of the gospel. We who are sinners, who are dead in our trespass and sin, who are separated from a a righteous and a holy God, we who are by nature rebels, God has made sons and daughters. He has rescued us. He has redeemed us. He has restored us by the cross. Our sins were there on Jesus, on the cross, and Jesus was judged in our place. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. God's wrath on His own beloved Son in our stead. And Christ's righteousness was given to us as a gift. So our sins, paid for at the cross, washed away. Jesus, our substitute, died in our place. His righteousness, which He alone had, has been given to us as a gift of God so that if you trust Christ, If you believe on His name, if you call upon Him for salvation, if you cry out to God for forgiveness, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will know God as your loving Heavenly Father. You will be born again. You will be a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things are gone and the new has come. And that was what Paul boasted in. That was what Paul gloried in and nothing less. I love this verse in Jeremiah chapter 9. Verse 23, I quote it often. But it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving-kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. If you're going to glory in anything, if you're going to brag or boast in anything, let it be in the fact that you know God, the living God, who exercises mercy and loving-kindness and justice. That's something to be impressed by. You know, we're impressed by might we're impressed by wealth we're impressed by wisdom human wisdom wealth and might we can even be intimidated by that a little bit but is God impressed with that is he intimidated by any of that absolutely not what impresses God is when we in humility make much of him when we glory in who he is and what he has done and Paul was marked by that So how often are we bragging to others about the goodness and the faithfulness of God? Is it in your speech? Are you oftentimes talking to other people about the goodness and the kindness of God? About God's mercy and His forgiveness, His love? How often are we pointing people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Who Christ is and what Christ has done and what our lives are like as a result of His mercy. That's what it is to be a witness of Jesus. And that was Paul. He said, I'm only going to talk about those things which Christ has done. Paul was a witness of Jesus. And and we see this so beautifully played out in Acts chapter 4. The disciples, after Jesus had ascended into heaven, they go out by the power of the Holy Spirit and they're preaching the gospel. And the uh, religious rulers hated this. They tried to stamp it out. They thought that when they had Jesus crucified by Pontius Pilate, that would be the end of it. But that was only the beginning of it, right? And so now the disciples are out preaching this message, and they tried to stop them on a couple of different occasions. We have recorded in Acts chapter 4. And the first time, we're told here in Acts chapter 4, verse thir- 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. There was nothing that they could they could say other than clearly these guys have been with Jesus. That's amazing to me. They came. They tried to get them to stop preaching this message. And when they responded in power, they knew something was going on here. Something special, something supernatural, that these guys had truly been touched, that these guys were truly like Christ. They had been with Jesus. I've always loved that verse. i thought there's no greater compliment than that. than for someone to say when they look at you, man, that person has been with Jesus. I mean, who, who doesn't want that for people to, to be able to say that? And that's what it is to be a witness. First off, you have been with them. These were not highly trained men. They were uneducated, untrained men. I'm not sure which one of these words. But I think it's uneducated. Actually, the Greek word is idiotes. And so they're like, man, these guys are idiots. You know, they're, they have not been trained in the schools that we have been trained in. But one thing that is undeniable is that they have been with Jesus. That's what it is to be a witness. So they were threatened. They were told not to preach anymore. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, it says, So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They said, look, you do what's right in your own eyes, but we can't help ourselves. We must speak about the things that we have seen and heard. These are men who had been with Jesus. It was obvious. Their lives reflected it. And they were men that could not help themselves. They had to talk about Jesus. They had to tell people about what they experienced, what they saw. That's all it is to be a witness, folks. You know, people think, I'm not qualified. I can't be a witness. It's just someone who speaks of the things that you have seen and heard. What has God done in your life? Who were you before you knew Christ? When did you trust Christ? What has He done in your life? That's what it is to be a witness, to give an eyewitness account of who Christ is and what He has done in your life. Now, conversely, I think the real struggle is for us not to speak about ourselves and who we are and all the things that we've done, right? It could be a witness to Jesus or we can be a witness of ourselves, Right? Do we go out of our way to be acknowledged for the things that we have said and done? Do we get upset if we don't get recognized for the things that we have said and done? Are we a witness for Jesus or are we a witness for ourselves? So often, that's the struggle, right? It's not that we can't be a witness for Jesus or that we're not qualified. It's just that we're so busy being a witness for ourselves that there's this competing thing going on here. And we see this kind of thing happen even with John the Baptist. This is amazing to me. John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist's ministry was to make much of Christ. It was to point people to the fact that the Messiah was coming. And that they needed to prepare their hearts. They needed to get ready for the coming of the Christ. So in John chapter 3, verse 26, John's own disciples come to him with a little bit of an issue. And they say this in verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase. I must decrease. Now that's a witness of Christ. That was his job, that was his ministry, was to point people to Christ. And when Christ came on the scene and everybody started going to Christ, John's disciples said, hey, this is not cool. They're going to Him now. What about us? And John said this was the way it was always supposed to be. It was never about me. It was never about us. It was always about Jesus. I must decrease, He must increase. The problem I think so often is we get that backwards. We must increase, Jesus must decrease, is the way that we can often live our lives. We may say one thing, but our lives may altogether reflect another. And so, to be a witness, to make much of Christ, to only speak of those things which Christ has done, to give Jesus the glory and not ourselves, you know, that was Paul's mission. That was Paul's overarching principle. And that should be ours too. And I know that that's what we want. I know that that's what we desire. That we would speak of the things that Christ has done in and through us. That we would give Christ the glory and not ourselves. And this brings us to our third and final point. Paul had a radical philosophy of ministry. And that was to be a pioneer. Paul was a pioneer in ministry. Verse 20. He says, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. So Paul had a pioneer spirit. He was called to go into unreached places for Christ. And that's exactly what he did. Paul's objective was to preach Christ where Christ had never been preached. And that is a glorious objective. That is a a great spirit in ministry to, to be a pioneer. However, Paul himself said that this was not the only way to do ministry. Some are called to lay the foundation. Paul would often be that guy. Others were called to build upon that foundation. Some are called to plant. Others are called to water. Maybe you're a little more familiar with that language. Well, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking about himself and another brother uh, in ministry, Apollos. And he says this, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed? As the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the increase. So there are those who are called to lay the foundation, those who are called to build on it in ministry. There are those who are called to plant, to sow seed, and there are those who are called to water. To put it another way, there are some who are pioneers and there are some who are settlers. We all have a place in this thing, you understand? You know, Pastor Bill when the transition was getting ready to happen and he was going to hand the church to me and I was going to be the, the senior pastor, he told the board, the, the elders, he said, look, when I came here 30 years ago, we were in pioneer mode. We were working hard. We were building something. Blood, sweat, tears, lots of sacrifice. But over the years, we began to settle, you know. The settlers come in, and they settle in on the land, and that's a good thing. That's how it should be. But he said, now that Pastor Rob's coming in, we need to go back into pioneer mode because God is going to want to do something new. God is going to do something fresh. And so that's kind of been our philosophy. We're ready to start building again. We're ready to go back into pioneer mode. We want to do new things, go new places, see a fresh work and a fresh move of God. And so we as a church want to have a pioneer spirit. You understand? And so there is that. There is this desire to go into new unreached places and to do new things and to see people come to faith in Christ. But then there's also a desire to continue to build upon what we have. And so we have evangelists in the church, people who love to go and to preach the gospel and to see people come to faith in Christ. And we have people who are disciple makers, who are one-on-one type folks, people who can lead groups. We have so many different ways in which people are able to pioneer and to, to settle, as it were. And God uses all types. We have those who like to plant and those who water. God uses all types. In our philosophy of ministry, we want to do both. We want to be a pioneer, right? We want to move forward in Jesus' name, and we want to be used by God to go deeper into ministry here in Napa and all around the world. But at the same time, we want to be those who are building, those who are laboring, those who are investing and pouring into the people that have trusted Christ, who are here in our midst. I love the radical nature of Paul's life and heart here. I love. the the radical aspect of Paul's ministry. But you know what? Radical is relative. Let me repeat that. Radical is relative. I think we're all called to be radical for Jesus. You know, in this day and age that we live in, just living for Jesus is a radical thing. You know, I've heard people say things like, okay, if you want to be a Christian, that's fine. Just don't be one of those radicals. You know, and that would be someone who actually believes the Bible, someone who actually tries to live for Jesus. That's a radical, right? But as I said, radical looks very different from person to person. You know, maybe you've heard there's a book called Radical. It's a great book, this concept of, of being a radical Christian, and, and I was really moved by that. And I mean, it really lit a fire in me to want to be radical for Christ, but I think It can also be dangerous because I think that you can begin to think, well, radical looks like this. And so if I don't do this, then I'm not really walking Christianity out. I'm not really serving the Lord. And that can have a very negative effect on people. And so I think there's a balance. You know, there is a such thing as ordinary in Christianity, and that's a good thing, too. You understand the ordinary Christian life, which is what it is, quite frankly, more often than not. People come to faith in Christ, they are fired up, they're excited, but then after a while that cloud dissipates. And then they've got to walk it out, one foot in front of the other, and they have to learn to be a faithful Christian in the mundane, to show up, to serve the Lord, to be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good employee, a good employer, a good churchman or a churchwoman, and to, to participate and to, to be faithful and consistent to the Lord given to reading the Word of God, praying, praying to God, praying for others, plugging in, serving the Lord, day in, day out, week in, week out, you know, living in the ordinary, faithful in the ordinary. And I think I don't mean to belittle it by calling it ordinary. I think so often that's where it's at. I love those mountaintop experiences. That outreach yesterday is a mountaintop experience. That's radical. But then you've got to come back down that mountain into the valley. And oftentimes, that's where Christianity is truly lived out, down in the valley. That's where Christians are so often made, down in the valley. And so there is this balance between ordinary and radical, and I think we are to be both. And I think we are to realize that radical looks very different from person to person. So radical for one person might be selling everything that they own and moving and going on the mission field. Praise God for people who are called to do that and who do do that faithfully. That's radical. Radical for someone else might be you're absolutely overwhelmed with just your family duties and responsibilities. You're faithfully serving God in that capacity, but then you carve out a little bit of time to be able to meet with another sister and to invest in her, pour into her. That's radical. You know, there's a a sister that came up to me a couple months ago here and said that she always sees this guy outside of McDonald's and she wanted to go and give him a slice of pizza on a Sunday and we gave her a little My Heart, Christ home and she gave it to him. That's radical. You know, radical doesn't look the same for every single person, but you got to know what that is for you. And so we want to have a radical philosophy of ministry. We want to be those who are pioneers and at the same time settlers. We want to be those who, are, who live the ordinary Christian life but also live radically for Jesus. And there's a balance in all of this. And you just got to figure out who you are and where you fit in all of that. Amen? And so it's our desire to help you. We want to equip you to do just that. That is why what we do what we do here at church. You know, I love Sundays. This to me is one of the most important things we do because a couple reasons. I believe it's a New Testament mandate. The Bible says that the, the believers gathered on the first day. And what did they do? They celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And so we gather to do that. And we gather to exalt Christ corporately this is not so much about us as it is absolutely about Jesus when we gather here today. Oftentimes we do. We make it about us. What did we get out of the service? You know, did, we really, did we really enjoy the worship? You know, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. The teaching? I don't know. I just was this or that. But it's not so much about what we get here as much as what we give to Jesus and to each other. And so that is why I think Sunday is so important and I could keep going on but that's not all of it Sunday is a part of the whole and everything that we do here is designed all of our gatherings men's gatherings women's gatherings uh, Wednesday night small groups I mean everything that we do is gonna be designed prayer meetings so that we can be discipled so that we can grow as disciples of Christ and so that we can be equipped to make disciples of Christ that is what why we do what we do. Understand that. And so as important as today is for us, Sunday there's, there's more to it than just today. And I want us to kind of get to that next place where we realize that there's a mission here. There is a, a bigger picture. And so um, that's, that's what we want to do. We want to start really helping to stir up discipleship. And so one thing in particular that, particular that we're going to do is I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. We have kind of a central tool that we're going to use. It's a discipleship packet, if you will, um, that is a very thorough and comprehensive breakdown of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a disciple. And it's designed to be a one-on-one kind of deal where you can take somebody through it. And we want to start seeing this, uh, we want to adopt this and, and really start seeing people get in the game of discipling one another. And, and we want to start having more trainings where we're going to teach you how to witness and how to share your faith and how to, how to disciple. And so just know we want to do that. We want to help you. We want to make these resources and opportunities available to you. But I really want to urge you to get in the game. To step into it, to trust the Lord, to let God use you in a way that perhaps you've never been used before. Because if you're not doing this, folks, you're only experiencing part of Christianity. If you're not being used by God, you're only experiencing part of the Christian faith and walk. And so we want to help you go the whole way. So, you know. Odds are there are plenty of people in this church who have been in this church for 20, 30 years or who have been walking with the Lord 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But you've not been discipled in a systematic way and you wouldn't know how to disciple somebody else in a systematic way. That was my experience. I just kind of got it where I got it. You know, a little bit here, a little bit there. And, you know... You don't really know how to take somebody else through a discipleship process that you yourself have not been taken through. Now, you might be solid in the Lord. You might be really mature in the Lord, but you might not know how to disciple somebody else. Well, we want to help you. Maybe you are new to the faith. Maybe you, ha- are, you don't even consider yourself a disciple and you want to be discipled. Well, we want to help you. We want to teach you the nuts and bolts of Christianity. We want to walk you through that systematically. And so we want to begin this process. And so no matter where you are in this, there's a place for you. And so there's going to be more details to come in the coming weeks. We want to line this thing up on the church calendar where it doesn't conflict with other things. And we're trying to figure out when and how and where that's going to be the best way to do it. But we want to get serious about being a church that makes disciples, right? Just because we say it doesn't mean that's who we are. Just because it's printed on a bulletin doesn't mean that that's who we are. Now, it's happening. People, disciples are being made, and we're excited about that, but we want to see it happen all the more. We want to see people coming to faith in Christ and discipled exponentially, and that happens through multiplication as we get busy doing one-on-one discipleship. So just know that's our vision, that's our mission, that's our heart, and I believe it is yours too. And we can and we'll do this together, and we're going to help you. And so you just got to step into it. You've got to step up. You've got to step forward in faith, even though you might be scared or thinking you can never do it in a million years. Trust God. Remember I talked about that grace in the beginning of this, the grace given to us by God? That's what that's about. You can't do it. I can't do it. Except for the grace that is given to us by God. That's what makes us competent. That's what makes us capable to be filled with goodness and knowledge and able to instruct, exhort, teach, train, and disciple one another. Amen? And that is available to us in Christ. It's ours. And so um, I'm going to close on that note. Ashley, do you want to lead us in a song? I'm going to pray for us. And, you know, Pastor Aaron is our our pastor of outreach and discipleship. He'll be standing out here. Um, I want to encourage you, come up to that brother and just let him know. I want to get in the game. and And we'll start getting you guys plugged in. And so just know that. And so you can reach out to me, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Dan, anybody, and and, uh, we will plug you in. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we thank you, Father, for the lessons that are found in the text before us today. Father, may that be our purpose in life, to be effective ministers of the gospel. May the overarching principle of our life be to glorify Christ and not ourselves. And may we too, Father, be be radical in ministry for You. Whatever that looks like from person to person. May we have a philosophy of wanting to be radical for You, Jesus. Help us individually to know what radical means and give us the faith and the courage to step into it. Father, may we be a church that really reflects the heart of Christ. Jesus, it's Your church purchased with Your blood and You said that you would build your church. And it would be built upon that foundation, that that rock, that statement, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we are yours. And we want to walk obediently. We want to be on mission, as so many of our faithful brothers and sisters have through so many generations over the last couple thousand years, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to be on mission for you. Help us, Lord, by your mercy and by your grace to be disciples, making disciples. We trust you, Lord. We believe and we're excited about this next season of life and ministry in this church. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.